0: The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country, and a good time.
1: At the Village Square, we believe big things can happen when ideas collide inside the bonds of mutual respect.
0: We're building the town hall of the 21st century across the partisan divide. At the Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company.
1: When most separate,
0: we gather, across color, creed, and ideology. Listen, at the Village Square, we make pigs fly.
2: Welcome to the Village Squarecast. This is your host, Vanessa Rouse. Thank you for joining us for Love and Hate at Home. At a time when divisions are deep in our country, we remember the Holocaust and we ask, why should we remember? And what is my responsibility? This is a throwback episode from an event held in February of 2019 that was presented in partnership with HERC, the Holocaust Education Resource Council, and Tallahassee Community College in honor of Holocaust Education Week. Barbara Goldstein, Executive Director of HERC, and Heather Mitchell, Executive Director of the TCC Foundation, partnered with the Village Square to make this event happen. The event was facilitated by Sally Bradshaw, owner of Midtown Reader and former chief of staff for Governor Jeb Bush. Four panelists joined this conversation. First up was Ryan Cohn, partner and executive vice president at Sachs Media Group.
0: When I look at, you know, what I do with public relations, you know, I, I hate the term spin doctor because, you know, it's not about trying to put a spin on something or trying to hide the truth. Because, I mean, that's really, that's what propaganda is. Propaganda, especially how, say, the Nazis did that, was very much about limiting speech, limiting information, and hiding the truth.
2: Next up is Roseanne Wood from the Leon County School Board.
3: You know, I'm so glad that you brought up about silos and stereotypes because our students are very aware of this. I'm very positive on the generation coming up. Uh, and so I just think if you ever hear that, all oh, the students today, don't believe it. They are our hope.
2: And then we have Dr. Dan Leshem, Executive Director of FSU's Hillel Center.
4: Scholars have been trying forever to figure out during the Holocaust, why did some small number of people save or help or provide aid, where the majority of people didn't? and they wanted to come up with an answer. They wanted to say, it's people of faith. It wasn't. They wanted to say, it was money. It wasn't. The only thing they've been able to find, people who came from supportive families. They're the people who expect the world will work that way, that the right thing is going to happen, and that it's not going to be someone else doing it
2: and finally, we hear from Judge Nina Richardson of the Second Judicial Circuit Court of Florida.
5: So when we moved here, my mom was shocked. We moved here in 19, the 1960s, and she thought everybody was just gonna love Ethiopian people because Ethiopian people are some of the most kind, loving people in the world. But when she came, it was the 60s and was the segregated time of our life, and, and they were looking at her like, you're, you're dirt. You know, you're dirt, you need to leave. We don't like you here. So she left. She said, I can't take it. It's just too much for me. It's killing me. I can't live in this country because I don't understand why they hate me so much and they don't know me. So she left. My parents ultimately got divorced because my dad wanted me to get in and my sister an education in the U.S.
2: As we've done with some of our longer programs, we're breaking this discussion into two episodes. We're going to hear from Ryan, Roseanne, and Dan in this first one. And then in the next episode of the Village Squarecast, we'll hear Judge Nina Richardson's remarkable story. And we'll also hear the Q&A portion of the event. And I gotta say, I was really impressed by the questions that came up. Many of them touched on exactly what I found myself thinking about during the program. Like, what can we do about all this? So please join us again next week for part two of Love and Hate at Home. All right, before we begin this throwback program, we wanted to check in with someone who's very familiar with these topics and who actively works to unify people and combat hate. Rabbi Michael Shields is the rabbi at Temple Israel here in Tallahassee, Florida. He came to our community for that position during the summer of 2019. Rabbi Shields is also part of Village Square's God Squad program, which used to be called Faith Food Friday. These are lunchtime events where diverse faith leaders participate in discussions about faith and politics among a diverse group of attendees across various religions or people who identify with no religion at all. So now let's chat with Rabbi Shields briefly before we start the program. Well, hello, Rabbi Shields, and thank you so much for joining us on the Village Squarecast. We're glad to have you here.
6: Glad to be here.
2: And so glad you chose to be here in Tallahassee. So today, we're going to talk about the program called Love and Hate at Home, which aired about a year and a half ago at one of the Village Square's dinner at the square events. And it was a great program. And I'm so glad that we're going to be able to share it with even more people on the podcast. And as we do that, we wanted to have a little chat with you about what you're seeing now. As I said, this was a year and a half ago. And so, you know, we're here at a time when Americans are feeling that we have a growing divide between us. And we're seeing our divisiveness impact friendships and family relationships in a way that a lot of us really haven't experienced at this level. And so I wanted to just start by asking you, what are you seeing now in terms of growing hate or rising anti-Semitism? What's going on?
6: Well, I I mean, there's obviously divisions. And I think this is a profoundly, I think, different time. I mean, there were divisions in the past throughout our history. There's been anti-Semitism in the past in our history, and the communities have felt that. But I think there's a level of anxiety and fear that is right there bubbling below the surface um, for the Jewish community. And I think, in some sense, COVID 19 has kind of not pushed it down, but the day to day stresses may not give the space to really articulate those fears. But the current environment, it's not a political conflict. This is hate being sanctioned or at least uh, allowed to happen without any opposition from from the highest office in the land. Whereas any president, I think if you look back in recent history, regardless of party, has really stood against that proliferation of hate. And And again, it's not a political statement. Listen, in August of 2017, Yes, it's one event, but it's, it's uh, hundreds, thousands of white supremacists and new Nazis invaded Charlottesville, right? Not a peaceful protest, not some scattered. It was, it was a conspiracy and meticulously planned to bring violence with instructions on how many, how much oil to put in your tiki torches and months of online organizing. And this is still happening. And The idea that hate in this way is just some, a couple young white men in their parents' basement is false because through this case and this lawsuit and tracing electronically, this uh, organization called Integrity First for America, they have discovered because they've gotten the handles of people who are involved in the planning and supporting. And now we have a much better sense that it's not a 1% kind of thing. It's more like, there are 10 percent of people in this country who actively identify as white supremacists or white nationalists, and that there is perhaps as many as 15 to 20 percent of the country, if not more, who are very sympathetic. And it's not just young white men. And just to give you a sense in some of the discovery during this court case, which is in in civil court, they're suing the conspiracy. They discovered a, a young young woman, middle aged woman, with the a handle Airy Ann who was said, please don't expose me. And she was, you know, a technology worker in Silicon Valley. So we're not just talking about young white men in the South, we're talking about a network and people who are being actively radicalized in this country. And it seems that uh, there could be more done by our federal government in confronting this and taking it seriously so that's kind of my general feeling and, and the idea of responsibility and remembering and kindness as we talk about the past, I think there's a place for that, but there's also a time to being nice and kind doesn't mean that you have to kind of make everything. Okay. Um, doesn't mean that you can't confront. And I think that's been part of, um, the conversation. I think when there's, there are many sides, but the two sides, the side that is feeling that is oppressed in any conversation is asked to be nice and kind. And so whenever they speak about that injustice in a way that reveals their anger and deep hurt and the impact it's had on their lives, they're called unkind and sometimes labeled as, you know, rabble rousers or rioters or fill in the blank. and. And that's hard. And that's not always how meaningful conversation and interaction has to go.
2: Absolutely. So complicated. So as we look to the future and where we go from here, what's on your mind?
6: I'm hoping that the coming year will be one of renewal and a sense of um, partnership and just fellowship for all. And and for me, that's really important. There's a a vibrant um, or active Muslim community here in Tallahassee, there's, there are Hindus and Buddhists and Mormons and and atheists and agnostics and, and all of those folks. And I think when we talk about interfaith, I mean, maybe it needs to be uh, nuanced a bit more. And I, I think that's, for me, a very important piece because there's a whole bunch of folks who don't identify as religious, probably 60, 70 percent who don't, have, don't identify strongly in a religious way. And they are largely then left out of the conversation. And so then the people who are dictating maybe the sides are people of who, who claim a, a strong affiliation with faith and often are a minority faith, even with, amongst their bigger block. So I think we have to form wider coalitions that recognize the value of everybody, that, the values of everybody.
2: Absolutely. Well, thanks for your work. I know that's something that you work on. So thank you for being a unifier, being a member of our community, being part of Village Square. Thanks for all that you do. You're welcome. All right. We're going to share a little more of our chat with Rabbi Shields in the next episode during part two of Love and Hate at Home. And we'll learn more about God Squad because that ties in with one of the audience suggestions at the end of the program. Okay, moving on, just a quick note about an interactive part of this program. The audience members had the opportunity to think about action steps that they could take in their own lives to help promote love and combat hate. They filled out little commitment cards, and then the Village Square reminded them several weeks later of the commitments they made. Well, we didn't want you guys to miss out, so we're giving you the same opportunity. To participate, visit ttvs.org/love to complete a quick form and then we'll follow up with you later to check in. Again, you can participate by going to ttvs.org/love. I think this is such a fantastic exercise cuz so often we have great ideas about things that we want to do and things that we know would be wise but then life gets busy, and some things just don't get done. And that's why accountability partners are so helpful. So let us be your accountability partner on this. And by the way, if you get stuck, check out the very end of part two coming out next week. Because Heather Mitchell gives us her list, and it's a good one. Heather, hope you don't mind. Imitation is the best form of flattery, right? Without further ado, I'm going to turn you over now to Heather Mitchell to introduce the program. And by the way, our audio begins shortly after Heather was welcomed to the stage. So we're jumping in right there.
7: And this is my fabulous partner in crime, Barbara Goldstein. Look, you got whistles. What? Barbara is the executive director of the Holocaust Education Resource Council. And she's gonna talk to you after I talk to you for just a minute. So Barbara and I had this grand plan. She came to visit me last spring, and forgive me if you've heard this before, because I see a few familiar faces in the audience. She came to visit me last spring, and she said, I think we could do something pretty cool. Most of you may not know, HERC is actually located on TCC's campus. We have a great partnership with them. So Barbara came to me, and she said, I have a dream. I have a dream of a Holocaust Education Week that partners with Tallahassee Community College. And I said, I too have a dream, and it's to do that very same thing. Because in a prior life, I was involved in a project which produced... A curriculum that middle school teachers did for students about the Holocaust and about Jewish heritage and culture so it's always stuck with me so I was very pleased to sit down and talk with her so we developed this amazing week and we had three things that we really wanted to do this week we wanted to engage the students in our community TCC we, we love Florida State and we love the high school students too and FAMU We wanted to engage the teachers and the faculty at FSU and the staff. That was really important to us. And the third was we wanted to engage the community. So I'm going to give you just a very short, quick rundown of what we've done this week to show you how amazing it has been. So the first day of this week, we hosted two premieres. One was a worldwide premiere. TCC students last fall in the history class did documentaries about the Holocaust and how it was covered in Tallahassee that was juried by another group of students and then spliced together by another group of students. And that six-minute video was premiered on Monday night at TCC, which is pretty great. We're going to be putting on our social media pages. So if you're not our friend on Facebook, TCC Foundation, you should be. And we'll load that up tomorrow. After that premiere, we did a premiere of the documentary, Eva, which was amazing. It's going to be shown on PBS in April, and so we encourage you to take a look at it. It gives you such an interesting view of the Holocaust from a survivor and her road to forgiveness, which is, I think, a pretty amazing thing. So please do check it out. Tuesday night, we had a special performance by our award-winning forensics team. No, that's not taking your fingerprints, that's speech and debate. And so we had four performances from students that focused on hate speech bullying, school shootings, law enforcement, um, slavery, and Jewish community. It was amazing. Last night, we hosted an author, Peter Hayes, who came to Tallahassee, both on campus and at our downtown campus at the Center for Innovation, Peter Hayes. He was amazing. His book, Why Explaining the Holocaust, was awesome. You should pick the book up. You can get it at Midtown Readers. It's a great, easy read. It's how he developed his coursework at Northwestern. Trust me, just go buy it. Today we're doing this, and tomorrow we are going to end on campus with a presentation from one of our faculty members, Dean um, Dr. Armani Finkelstein, about the others. So the Holocaust, while it affected mostly Jews, it also affected people with disabilities, it affected the LGBT community, it affected Catholics, it affected large numbers, and he's going to talk about that. So we feel like our goal was complete. And so we are very pleased to welcome you here tonight. So I'm going to turn over Barbara for her to finish up before she introduces Sally.
5: Thank you very much, Heather. And um, thank you, everybody, for coming. And I love that we have such a, a great turnout. With that said, I don't want to take up more time because Heather told you all about our week. But just remember, next year we're planning another week. So, get excited for more programs next year, and it will be amazing um, great education opportunity for the schools for campus for the community we 're already talking about what we 're going to be doing um, i 'd like to start introducing Sally Bradshaw, our moderator Sally would you are you ready to come up here? okay. So when we started planning, Heather and I sat down and we sat down with Liz. Where's Liz joining, by the way? Liz, waving in the back. Thank you, Liz. And Leslie, where's Leslie? Thank you, Liz and Leslie, because without them, the Village Square could not be doing this tonight as our partnership. This was amazing. So as Heather explained to you what was going on all week, we were busy, right? But Leslie and Liz were busy planning this with Sally. So what I'm gonna turn over has it will be Sally is gonna take over as moderator to an amazing panel that will address really important topics. And I'll leave you walking out if you're thinking about a lot of questions, and just I hope we'll be learning from tonight. And with that said, Sally is the owner of Midtown Reader, this amazing bookstore. Can I have a show of hands? How many of you have been in Midtown Reader? Yay. Okay. Did you see that? So if you did not raise your hand, you know where you're going to be going, right? Midtown Reader. It's located on Thomasville Road. It's the best bookstore in town. With that said, Sally is going to take it over and with an amazing panel. Thank you. Welcome to the Village Square. It feels like I'm in a giant living room
1: every time I'm here, which is a lot of fun, and that's the goal for tonight. I feel really privileged to be with each of you to talk about such a challenging but important subject. I've done many um, things with Liz Joyner in the Village Square. I've come to many of these dinners, but perhaps nothing quite as important and as sobering as the discussion that we're getting ready to have tonight. And of course, Liz Joyner and Barbara Goldstein are two women to whom I can unfortunately never say no. So I'm gonna to try to moderate this panel tonight and keep the discussion going. I feel very fortunate to be included. So thanks to the Village Square, to Barbara and Herc, and Heather Mitchell and Jim Murdoch for being partners in this important week. Tonight we are discussing love and hate at home, as you know, and we're asking not only why should we remember the Holocaust, but also, what is my responsibility since I know about it? What is my responsibility right now, tomorrow morning, over the weekend, next week, in my home, in our community, in our places of worship, or our workplace, and in our children's schools? I think it's important not only to say, no, that was wrong, it's perhaps even more important to help people understand what is right. And so the challenge tonight is what can we do in response to what we know, positive role modeling of behavior. This requires a lot of work. You should have a little card on your seat or near your seat on the table if somebody will hold that up. If you're familiar with the Village Square, that's going to be your homework assignment. So you should not be sitting quietly and listening. You should take the card, you should get a pen or a pencil, take notes from the discussion, and then the Village Square is going to mail you that card in a week. Or 10 days to remind you what you committed to tonight. We need to find ways to lead and role model in positive ways to understand why things happen, how to keep those things from happening again, and doing it not in a negative way. One bad action doesn't deserve another bad action. We see a lot of that. From both sides, I think of the political aisle, the religious aisle. That's not what we're talking about tonight. We're looking for positive ways to inspire people to do better. So those are the notes you're supposed to take once you know about the Holocaust, you have to be part of what it takes to make sure it will never happen again. So with that, I want to introduce our terrific panel. We're having a bit of a progressive panel tonight. If you've been to Village Square before, this will be familiar to you. We're going to bring up one panelist, then another, then another, then another. Then we're all going to come back to tables, and we're going to have fishbowl questions. So you have a big fishbowl in the middle of your table with some surprise questions, so you can have conversations at your table about what we've discussed, then we're coming back up to close it out with our panelists so you can ask questions. So our first panelist tonight is Ryan Cohn. Ryan is a partner and executive vice president of Sachs Media Group, which was recently named the PR Firm of the Year, no surprise, by PR News. Ryan's focus is providing strategic direction for clients and driving growth across digital media and advocacy initiatives, and Ryan has also taught social media management at FSU. I told him earlier that would have been, that would have helped me several campaigns ago. <laughs> Too late for that now. Previously ran a social media marketing agency, so please welcome Ryan Cohn. Thank you, Thank you Ryan. You so you uh, there's it? so many, I mean, I could talk to you for hours about social media. It is was originally designed to be something that I think really connected us and made us closer but in some ways one could argue that it is in fact driven us apart and so i want to see if you are seeing something new in the way we're communicating with each other and what we're saying to each other these days
0: you know we're definitely seeing this interesting evolution in how we communicate you know i, I like to look back upwards of even you know hundred plus years ago to see the big changes that have happened in communications where you know when we first started seeing the shift toward mass media with the evolution of radio and television that suddenly took us from getting our information from very niche localized sources like uh... community newspapers and newsletters in your in your general vicinity in your community and suddenly it was messaging that had to transcend and really encompass everything that we all care about. So, you know, you can't have a a TV show when you have three stations for broadcast TV that really just focuses in on one demographic or one interest. You have to have something that brings everyone together that sort of unites around a common message. But with the evolution of digital communications and social media, suddenly we've seen the ability to where, you know, if if you have a phone in your pocket, you're a publisher today. You're able to, to broadcast with whatever you want and say whatever you want to an audience that you curate among your friends, your family, your network. And so when you've got that, suddenly you have so many more choices for who you're listening to, where you get your news from, and who you surround yourself with. And, you know, it's interesting that we're, we're not only seeing the shift in communications toward localized connections and information gathering, but we're even seeing migration patterns where people are physically relocating to be closer to people who are similar ideologically to themselves. And so you see congressional districts that may have been one or two points, Democrat or Republican 10 years ago, are suddenly eight or 10 points in one direction or the other today because we are not just surrounding ourselves in terms of content information about what we want to see, but we're surrounding ourselves with people who are just like us. So that does create groupthink, it creates similar mindsets and really creates an echo chamber where we're only seeing from a lot of people what we want to see and what we want to believe. And there really isn't enough opportunity for contrasting, differing thought when all we're doing is seeing that constant drumbeat, one after the other, after the other, of friends, family, colleagues saying the same thing that we believe so it really does create an issue. your own beliefs exactly i'm just
1: curious in the audience how many of you still read the newspaper how many of you read a paper other than the tallahassee democrat a national paper like the new york times washington post wall street journal how many of you are on facebook twitter less on twitter instagram make sure you follow midtown reader you're on an Instagram. <laughs> it's, it's interesting to me because this audience is a very well-educated audience, Ryan. They're very engaged. They're very involved. It is an audience that is regularly trying to problem solve and bridge the divide and bridge the gap. But we can't help but have our own biases. We all have a lens through which we view content. And you mentioned that there is this movement to live and surround yourself with people who believe what you believe. What are you seeing on Facebook in terms of how this plays out? And what do we do when we see something objectionable on a social media platform? What what would you advise us to do?
0: So, you know, the the interesting challenge with Facebook is that with how Facebook works, you know, they've got a, a newsfeed algorithm that feeds us information that they believe that we care about, that we want to consume, that we want to view, we want to read and watch. Uh, because, you know, you think, what does Facebook at the end of the day care about? You know, that yes, they, they want to bring the world together and everything all well and good, but it's at its core about making money. And they know that the longer that they can get you to stay engaged with Facebook and the more often you can be checking it, that's more opportunities for them to show you ads. So they want to feed you information in your newsfeed that they think that you are going to be interested in, that you're going to like. If you just saw a newsfeed full of opposing thought, things that you really don't agree with, you're not going to be on Facebook for very long. Makes sense. So, that becomes challenging, though, when we need to get this other thought in the midst. And, you know, when I think about hate speech on Facebook, you know, it's, it's tough, I think, for a lot of us to really discern what is hate speech in our feeds and not. Because, first of all, are you going to have, you know, relationships deep enough on Facebook, friendships, to where your friends are posting hate speech? Well, if you see it, and you're friends with them and you believe the same things, you're probably not going to think of it as hate speech. You just think of it as a very opinionated viewpoint that, you know, you may agree with. So often, because we surround ourselves with like-minded people and we're seeing that same information, we may have trouble discerning what is hate speech in those instances. Whereas if you look at someone else's feed who's very different from yours, you may look at everything that their friends are posting and say, wow, wow. This is all hate speech. How, how could you not say something about this? Well, they don't see the world in the same way. So I think that we're seeing a blurring line of what's hate speech and what's just opposing viewpoints from what we believe. And, and too often today I'll say a lot of people accuse others of, you know, say, of putting out their hate speech when it's really not... And unfortunately, that tends to degrade what actually is hate speech and what really we need to stand up and call out as hate speech and take a stand against. And I, I will point out one other thing. You know, so I, if I see hate speech on Facebook, I've you know I've been known to report it before.
1: And what does that mean to report well, it? Well, and do so you do?
0: and so there's a button on Facebook, on any Facebook post, where you can report it actually as hate speech. The issue, though, is that Facebook has 2 billion, with a B, billion users worldwide. There are only 7 billion people in the world. Gosh. So one out of three people worldwide of all ages is currently on Facebook using it every single month, most of which on every day. And so suddenly Facebook, in their attempt to bring everyone together, has suddenly taken the, been almost forced into this role as the, the thought police. Mm -hmm. And when you've got two billion people all communicating, if everyone posts something once a day, that's two billion pieces of new content each day that they basically have to police. And so what's happened because they've fallen into this role and, you know, it's tough to put a budget item on, you know, police the internet, they've had to look for for unconventional ways of moderating these reports. So if you report a piece of content on Facebook as hate speech, sometimes you'll it will actually be reviewed by someone in the United States. Oftentimes, though, it's being sent overseas, basically to whoever will review this for the, the lowest price point possible. And so you get people in a lot of third-world countries who are reviewing, I mean post after post after post of some of the worst things you could ever think of. Not just hate speech, but, I mean, about pornography and horrible, lewd images. I mean, it's it's shocking. And they, in many cases, may not believe the same things that we believe and view the same things as hate speech that we would believe as such. And so that does create problems where you really can't just rely on Facebook to moderate the Internet, we have to take it all upon ourselves. We have to take control on this. We have to be able to discern what is hate speech, what's right, what's not. And if you see a friend of yours post something that you consider to be hate speech, what I would do, if you believe that their intent was not to be hateful and not to to create that those problems, reach out to them privately and be very respectful, and, and point out—you know—I'm sure you didn't intend to post this in such a way that, but you know, I, I do believe that it is—you know—it it may be construed by some as, as hateful, or it really may bother some people. Uh, and I just wanted to bring that to your attention in case you didn't notice. To you know, in a respectful, responsible way, create that dialogue. Otherwise, I mean, if you just go at them and say, "Hey," you know, this is hate speech, I can't believe you would post this, you're a horrible person, they're not going to listen to you.
1: You don't think that's going to be very effective? No,
0: no. Yeah. So we, we really have to engage with others and, and converse on, on that deeper level.
1: So I can't go on to our next panelist without asking you this question, because I'm considering you sort of the freedom of speech guy. You're the guy who is working in a PR firm, yeah. and you may be advocating something that not everyone would agree with, and that's your job. Um, not something as severe as hate speech or Holocaust denial but you may have a position on medical marijuana that someone else may disagree with. At what point does this cross the line? I mean, there are laws, and I think, and, and Dr. Leshem can talk about this in much more detail than you and I can, but in, I think, over 17 or 18 countries in Europe that actually prevent Holocaust denial, and there are severe consequences for denying the Holocaust in these countries. There is jail time associated with this behavior, both incidentally in Germany and Poland and Austria, countries that you know perpetuated the Holocaust, and in Israel and others. In fact, I think in the EU several years ago there was legislation to do just that, and the UK posted up and said no, because of freedom of speech concerns. What's your position on that?
0: You're right. I, I am the freedom of speech guy, I'm sure, in the group, and I very much believe that the more information we have out there, the better. And when we all can embrace and when we can empower people to review all sources of information, to take in everything, and then to make their own opinion, to make an educated viewpoint on the information that they're given, we're going to have the best overall society possible. You know, I, I want to believe that we all can do better and that we all can, we have the ability to to read, to watch, to learn, Everything that's, that we possibly can, I mean, especially this group here, we're the folks around who are going to take in all viewpoints, hopefully, who are going to search out new information to try to understand the entire picture, to get the full context. And that's really, I mean, when, when I look at, you know, what I do with public relations, you know, we're, we're not, you know, I, I hate the term spin doctor because, you know, it's not about trying to put a spin on something or trying to hide the truth, because, I mean, that's really, that's what propaganda is. Propaganda, especially how, say, the Nazis did that, was very much about limiting speech, limiting information, and hiding the truth. I believe in making sure that everyone has lots of opportunities to learn, that messages are put out there that are very important, that may be contrary to, to the general thought, to what we may think of as, you know, the assumed reality and to make people go, huh, you know, I never thought about that before, but that's really interesting. You get people thinking and they may end up hopefully at the conclusion we want them to be at at the end of the day, but the more information that we can give them, when we educate, we empower. And you look at what countries out there are are having the, you know, the opposite today, like Venezuela where when rebellion breaks out, they shut down the internet. They hide social networks. They make it so people can't spread information. Thankfully, though, there are a lot of technology options today that they can't hide, Then, empower people and give them the ability to share this really, extremely important information with the world, to let them know what's going on out there. And when we have those tools at our disposal, That's when we can, you know, we, we really can take this up a notch and educate the world to be a better tomorrow.
1: That's, a, that's actually a great segue to our next two panelists, who are both educators. So I want to bring up Roseanne Wood and Dan Leshem. Are you, are you guys ready? Roseanne Wood, I think we all know, currently serves as chairman or chairwoman of the Leon County School Board, which she was elected to serve in 2016 representing District 2. She has spent a life in education, serving as the founding teacher and then principal of Sale High School for 36 years. And she also serves as a past president of COCA, the Council on Cultural Arts in Tallahassee. And Dr. Dan Lesham currently runs FSU's Hillel Center on campus. He has a Ph.D. in Jewish Studies from Emory University. He is the former executive director of the Kufferberg Holocaust Center at Queensborough Community College in Queens, New York, and a former associate director of research for the Shoah Foundation, and adjunct assistant professor of comparative literature at USC Los Angeles. So let's welcome Dan and Roseanne to our <laughs> panel. So we're going to show you a video to the point of education being empowering um, that Roseanne is going to introduce for us. It's a short clip about a school swap. Can you tell us more about that, Roseanne? I
3: can. You know, I'm so glad that you brought up about silos and stereotypes because our students are very aware of this. I'm very positive on the generation coming up. I think I see a few of you back in the back, so I'm glad you're here. and. The students all, at all the schools, they have a president of their student body, and so they have a group called the SDAC. And they came to the school board and said, we want to try this thing because there are stereotypes of every school, and we want to see what we can do to break down. So... The president of the SDAC this year happens to be from Sale, but it has nothing to do with why I'm showing you this. I'm just proud of her, and I'm proud of all these students. And uh, the district did a little video on the reality because they thought this up. It's all student-driven, and this is a little video about them swapping schools. So let's just see what they have to say.
7: Just once, just for a second,
5: listen.
4: I don't think any public events that happens can define every single person that's here as an individual.
7: Turn off that blinder you've created just for one second and that person that you've made an assumption about.
5: Idea of allowing students at the high school level to experience other campuses. There are so many stereotypes and myths about certain schools. And in sitting down and having that discussion, we came to the idea that, well,
7: what if there was a way for us to spend time there?
0: People here that don't look like me, uh, it's pretty pretty much one demographic of people, so yeah, it's not like Rickards, Rickards is a different uh, demographic of people.
3: Well, I mean, I knew I wasn't really going to fit in, being a tall white kid, I didn't really think I was going to be the regular person at Rickards, but it turns out there's a lot of people like me, and on the inside, I think everybody here is pretty much the same as me.
5: experience at SAIL has been really great. They are different, but they're very welcoming and they embrace themselves, which a lot of people don't do at other schools.
7: For a lot of high schools, those stereotypes kind of just get planted in your head. It's a lot different than what I thought. Everyone is so nice. It's interesting how they run things, because they run things so differently than we do, but they still run them in such like, inefficient and like, progressive way.
0: You guys know that everybody isn't the same. Everybody has different mentalities, everybody has different purposes in life. So, experience the situation first, and then make your judgment. I believe uh, developing stereotypes is just natural behavior for for humans. But it's just important to remember how you were raised, remember how, you know, from the basics, from elementary school, how you were taught to be kind to everyone.
1: (laughs) Um, I've noticed a lot of people are really different, which is really good. Um, but I've also seen like the division with it. So one of my biggest goals, like one of my life goals, is to unify people despite our differences and just to like unify in love and keep doing good stuff for the world.
2: Thank you. I love that response to
4: the
0: reason.
7: If even this small group is able to come to a realization to better understand how to see beyond a stereotype. That's enough for me to feel a sense of accomplishment because we can carry that wherever we go from here.
1: That is incredibly moving, Roseanne. Not many draw eyes after watching that. Hopeful and optimistic and positive. You have some other examples of things that are happening in Leon County schools in terms of education. I do. Uh, Can you talk about that?
3: Yes. um I really learned more about this today. This is something that happened at Leon High School this week. There's an international hijab day. I don't know if you know about that. I hadn't heard of it. And the students did it at Leon today, and they, they signed up students who wanted to wear a hijab for the day and make it feel very comfortable and ask questions for those students who do wear hijabs to school and those who wanted just to try it out and see what it was like. And I talked to the teacher. She said it was all the kids' idea, and it was student-driven, and they, they made these nice solidarity buttons. And so students, even if they didn't want to wear a hijab, especially if they were guys, uh, they could wear these solidarity buttons. And they were all over the school. Uh, and so I just think if you ever hear that, oh, the students today, don't believe it. They are our hope. And they are really pushing through some of these things, I think, in ways that We've never thought of doing before, but you know, they are very creative and they, they see what goes on, they see what goes wrong, and I think there's such a good energy to stand up against racism and anti Semitism, and they're figuring out new ways to do it to reach their peers in ways they can understand. Uh so I'm really proud of that and I we couldn't see that video but if you want to see it just google um Leon Hijab Day 2019 and there's a there's a YouTube video about it it's very cool. The other thing we're doing in, that I'm real proud of this year is we've adopted a social emotional learning curriculum for all pre-K to 5th grade. Uh a person named Denny Sanford Uh, came up with a program called Sanford Harmony and he gives this curriculum to school districts. Twenty-two school districts in Florida are using it and they brought literally for free just truckloads of curriculum and they trained every teacher in all the elementary schools And what they're doing with it is teachers are beginning their school day with five or ten minutes of communication activities with circles and teaching children from pre-K on how to get along, how to communicate, how to work together. And that's, of course, the basis of understanding and putting themselves in other shoes. And so I feel like even though sometimes they may not get that training at home, it is just as important as teaching them how to read and write and I'm really proud of the school system for embracing this and I think we're going to see the payoff all the way down the road we're still trying to figure out something that the high school kids can you know do and that the teachers will do because they don't want to give up one minute of class but the elementary teachers are a little more open that way so um, I'm very excited about it
1: encouraging to see that to see that film Um, but I hate to bring us back to the reality that is the fact that some young people, obviously, are not behaving in the way that we would hope. And I wanted to ask Dan about this because we were talking earlier. He said young people are doing both, both positive and negative behavior. Dan has an extensive background in this. In the process of obtaining his Ph.D., he interviewed Holocaust survivors. He reviewed thousands of hours of conversations with Holocaust survivors. He is running the Hillel Center on campus. And so I want you to talk a little bit about the university population, which you've seen in multiple places, I think four or five different schools, and the behavior, the bad behavior that necessitates this conversation we're having tonight.
4: Sure. Um, Thank you. Uh, And thank you to Heather Mitchell and TCC. Thank you to Barbara and Herc. And thank you to St. John's and Village Square. It's an honor to have this privilege to speak with you. I would say that obviously students are diverse and the campuses I've been on are diverse. Um, in the last 10 years, I've worked at Emory University in Atlanta, um, at USC in Southern California, I've worked at CUNY, which in the CUNY system, which is City University of New York, that's the first public school, and now at FSU. And I guess the thing that I would say is that the students who do the best with diversity and accepting others are the students who are in the most diverse contexts, which is kind of surprising. So before I came here, I was working at Queensborough Community College, which is the most diverse community college in the country. Like Queens is the most diverse county. Our college had students, more than half of the students spoke a language other than English at home. And of those, there were 84 different languages. Now, at Queensborough Community College, as a member of the President's Advisory Council on Diversity, we focused 90% of our efforts on faculty and staff development and training because the students got diversity in ways that we obviously did not. Um, I'm from, you know, coming from Los Angeles, coming from USC, a private school, Especially in the undergraduate population is vast majority white and, uh, really the diversity comes in through the graduate programs and a lot of international students. Um, I just couldn't believe how student, how student groups walking around campus were all mixed groups visibly. I mean, in all kinds of ways, tall and short, black and white, every ethnic group. And they weren't noticing in the ways that I was noticing. I noticed. And the reports from the students about the faculty was that they were having great difficulty with this as well. So in some ways, I would say students who are in diverse contexts get diversity in intuitive ways. And the students that don't have that background struggle to find a way to express it healthily and understand it helpfully because we don't do a great job um, modeling it either in family units or in cultural units or in schools. In my experience, most public school systems that I've been around, with the exception of Queens, have been quite segregated. And so students aren't seeing difference as a natural part of being alive and learning. Difference is taught as a school subject. And as you know, anytime you try to teach something, It only partially goes in, so it needs to be taught taught over and over and over.
1: I want to quickly, before we bring Judge Nina up, ask you both sort of a lightning round question, and I'm going to prompt Roseanne on her answer a little, because she told me an amazing story about Barbara Goldstein recently and something that happened in the school system here. But can you give us some specific examples of things that are working with young people? You mentioned, Dan, being in diverse environments. I am going to get back to that in a minute, but Roseanne, share the story of what Barbara did in response to some anti-Semitic behavior in the public school system here.
3: Recently, Barbara and I had a chat because she was wondering how to approach a situation that happened at one of our middle schools. It was an anti-Semitic act and the students were suspended and she called me and said, you know... I'm I'm glad they were punished, they need to be punished, but I'm not sure how much they're learning from that, just being suspended. And so, she said, what do you think about the idea of them shadowing me for a day and I can give them some education? And I was like, yes, that is great. And so she talked to the principal, the principal and the parents were very open to it. And uh, it's it's just a great model for how to work with kids who are getting in trouble or who are, you know, not educated or they've been taught the wrong lesson. They've been educated in the wrong way. So uh, I just appreciate Barbara that you took your time for these handful of students, and that's how we. That's really how we make a difference. Is One student at a time. And so, you know, if other people would be willing to do that, uh, I think we could cut down our suspension rate, which would be great, (laughs) because people don't learn things while they're suspended and wandering around in the neighborhood. So I just think that's a really good way to start thinking about alternatives to punishment that educate at the same time.
1: Love and not hate. Um, What's your thought on that, Dan? Can you think of some specific examples where you saw bad behavior corrected through role modeling and... What is it that Holocaust survivors you mentioned to me had? Yeah.
4: Well, it's difficult to go to Holocaust as examples in comparison to things that are happening in ordinary life. But I will say that there are people in the the Holocaust survivors. One of the things you learn very quickly from listening to Holocaust survivor narratives is that every survivor says at some point, I'm alive because so-and-so did X, Y, or Z. Uh And usually, amazingly, what shocked me the most is it wasn't, in most cases, a rich German industrialist saved thousands of us in his factory. <laughs> That's not the story. It's, there was this one guy who was actually Polish in this factory, so also not the, the highest stature, also working for very limited wages, but not actually a slave in the factory, and like one survivor said, and then one day as we were cleaning out, I noticed that he smiled at me. And that gave me the strength. I'm alive today because someone one day smiled at me. And it sounds, it's so superficial. We're we're all geared and primed for stories of heroes. And the hero story is almost always false and almost always the ultra rare exception. It's the crust of bread that somebody gave them that they remember That when they were at their weakest point. Many people gave more, but more people gave nothing. And there were people who didn't help, and then one day it was easy enough, with low enough risk, that they did. And there was almost no one who was always helpful, who helped every person that they came across. They would always help this one and not that one. Um, or even they would help someone and in some other ways not help them ultimately. So it's not good person, bad person, hero, villain. It's that humans are constantly making a series of choices along a continuum. And any one of us and any one of students, our students, anyone around us is not a great person that will always make that choice. They are at every moment somewhere along that continuum. And they can move themselves, and we can try to educate them. And through education, sometimes you actually produce change in another human being. It's, and it's a miracle, and I don't think we think about that often enough.
1: Little strokes fell great oaks. Little things (laughs) matter when you don't even realize that they matter. And to that point, we're going to bring up Judge Nina Ashinafi Richardson now. I think everyone knows Judge Nina. She is...
2: (laughs) Hey there, it's Vanessa again, your podcast host. I know I'm not the voice you want to hear right now, because hopefully you're on the edge of your seat, ready to hear Judge Nina Richardson... But we do have to take a break here. And I think this really is a cliffhanger moment because Judge Nina's story is really remarkable. I found myself randomly thinking about different things that she said. You know, the concept of perspective really fascinates me and how we generally bring our own lived experience to the table and we have to work really hard to understand experiences of others. Well, Judge Nina's lived experience like her diverse and unique family relationships, have allowed her to experience this world and the impacts of hate in a way that many of us have not had exposure to, myself certainly included. So for me, I think the best way that I can try to grow my own perspective is to try to understand the lived experiences of others. And so this is partly a thank you to Judge Nina and actually all of the panelists for sharing their stories with us. And it's partly an encouragement to join us for part two so that you can hear this story yourself. It really is impactful. Thanks to all of our panelists for helping to grow our understanding and to help us think of ways that we can help combat hate and grow love. Please subscribe to the Village Squarecast in your favorite podcast app or on our website at villagesquare.us squarecast. That way you'll see part two of Love and Hate at Home pop up when it's ready and all the other episodes that come out in the future, weekly now, coming out on Thursdays. You can find the show notes for this episode with links to resources mentioned at villagesquare.us slash squarecast. And in that list, you'll find a link to the full video that those remarkable students created about the school swap. You can also subscribe to our newsletter to keep up to date with all of Village Square's activities at VillageSquare.us. We appreciate you listening to Love and Hate at Home, presented in partnership with Herc and TCC. Until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't look or think like you. It changes everything. We'll talk to you soon, and thank you so much for listening to The Village Squarecast.